Welcome to Reading Marx's Capital with David Harvey. This course consists of a close reading of Karl Marx's Capital, Volume 1, by CUNY Graduate Center Distinguished Professor David Harvey. The course was recorded at the People's Forum in 2019. The People's Forum is a movement incubator for working class and marginalized communities and an accessible educational and cultural space in New York City. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for both the Penguin Classics and Vintage Books editions of Capital. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash capital David Harvey. This episode is Class 7, Chapter 12, The Concept of Relative Surplus Value, Chapter 13, Cooperation, and Chapter 14, The Division of Labor and Manufacture. This was recorded live. Please be mindful there will be some changes in volume. Okay, then we should uh, <clears throat> probably start on uh, this week's topic, which is uh, uh, the beginning of the argument on relative surplus value. I think it goes without saying that uh, one of Marx's great achievements in his own view and Engels' view was, of course, the construction of the theory of surplus value uh, and his ability to make it very clear what this meant uh, by setting up uh, the working day and the absolute theory of surplus value. Uh, but now we're going to look at another form, which is the relative. And I think it's no exaggeration to say that this is one of the crucial concepts in Marx's capital, and it bears uh, a lot of weight in terms of explaining very much what the dynamics of capital accumulation are about. And so it's crucial then that we get the concept of relative surplus value uh, very well uh, embedded in our consciousness of how capital works. Uh, in effect, the argument is, is fairly simple. Uh, it is simply the idea that uh, if you fix the length of the working day to 10 hours or whatever, uh, then you ask the question, is there another way to gain extra surplus value without changing the length of the working day? Uh, and since uh, surplus value and the rate of surplus value uh, is fixed by the amount of value produced in that working day minus the amount of value that has to be produced to cover the value of labor power, then clearly you can get extra surplus value uh, by reducing uh, the value of labor power. Uh, Marx starts off and says, uh, well, of course, this could happen by paying workers less than their value. In practice, he says, this happens quite often. But, and here I uh, want to add something of importance to the text in general, 
that is where he says uh, on page 431 that despite the important part which this method plays in practice, we are excluded from considering it here by our assumption that all commodities, including labor power, are bought and sold at their full value. Uh, now, I've mentioned at the very outset that you always have to take into account Marx's assumptions. And this assumption that all commodities are uh, bought and sold at their full value, including the commodity labor power, is an assumption that holds throughout the whole of Volume 1 of Capital, and it therefore renders contingent much of the argument in Capital on that assumption. If you drop that assumption, then uh, all kinds of things can, can change. Uh, but I'd like to point out those passages where Marx mentions these assumptions because uh, then at least you can recognize that Marx is telling you what his assumptions are and it's not me telling you what his assumptions are. Um, if this is the case, then the only way in which you can get extra surplus value is by a fall in the value of labor power. And we're going to look at one of the ways in which labor power can fall. But I would invite you to go back to that section, those two pages where Marx defined how, what makes for the value of labor power. And as you will remember, it's the value of those commodities which are required to produce and reproduce the laborer at a given standard of living. Uh, there are all sorts of things that can affect the value. Uh, and back in that chapter, however, he said, from now on, he said, we're going to assume the value is fixed. But if you look at that section, you'll see there are all sorts of w ways in which it would not be fixed. Uh, for instance, he says, uh, what affects this, this, the value of labor power is uh, what is required uh, to keep uh, workers uh, warm and alive in different climatic conditions. So one of the ways in which you could uh, actually reduce the value of labor power is uh, to move production from uh, New England to the Sun Belt, uh, to California, uh, where the, the costs of heating and cooling are much less, and that therefore uh, here is one way in which you could affect the value of labor power. Uh, Marx also says the value of labor power depends upon uh, the degree of civilization in a country and therefore on the moral elements. Well, uh, maybe you could change the morality of the bourgeoisie so that they don't care. Uh, about uh, value of labor power. Maybe we could get the bourgeoisie to expect and to accept a theory of uh, austerity. And maybe we could get the International Monetary Fund to come in and uh, sort of impose a regime of austerity so that the laborers get used to the idea that uh, they're not living in a civilized country anymore, they're living in a barbaric place and they better get used to it. And accommodate. So there are, in fact, all sorts of ways in which the value of labor power could be 
adjusted given the way in which Marx set up that stuff. So I suggest you, you go back and look at the value of labor power and think about the different ways. But because Marx is only going to deal with one way in which the value of labor power uh, could be uh, uh, transformed. Uh, and that is that if the commodities which are needed to reproduce the value, uh, to reproduce the laborer, uh, are re uh, reduced in value through technological change, uh, then there's a systematic way in which technological change can contribute to the declining value of labor power. In other words, if laborers need so much food, so much clothing, uh, so much transportation, if you could reduce the value of all those use values, the use values would remain constant, but the total value required to produce those use values would be declining, and therefore the value of labor power would go down, and could go down while you maintain a certain standard of living. And the way this would happen would be by increasing the productivity of labor in those industries producing wage goods. So let's imagine then wage goods being those goods which are required to reproduce the laborer at a given standard of living. And if the value of those wage goods require, uh, declines because there is technological change which increases the productivity of the labor in the wage goods sector, then there will be a decline in the value of labor power. Uh, laborers would still receive the same amount of use values, but it would be uh, at lower value because of the higher productivity of uh, the labor applied in the wage goods sector. So this is basically the argument which Marx is making. Now, it would then follow the technological change in those industries producing luxury goods for the bourgeoisie would not increase relative surplus value because those wage goods do not enter into the determination of the value of labor power. So what is considered a luxury versus a wage good becomes significant. So again, one of the ways in which you could actually finesse some of this would be to say, okay, workers, you're used to certain luxuries. Uh, they're no longer luxuries. Uh, they're not part of your reproduction. So the reduction in the standard of living uh, of the worker could actually contribute to the decline in the value of labor power. Uh, at the same time, you start to see something which is a very real possibility about this. And I, and I, I think it's important to, Marx doesn't mention this, but it follows from what he said. If there is increasing productivity in society, then in fact, you could get relative surplus value for the capitalist expanding at the same time as you could not take all of the benefits of those productivity and give them to the capitalist, that some of it could go to the workers. So you could get a rising physical standard of living of the working class 
at the same time as you're increasing the relative surplus value for the capitalist class. In other words, if there is a tremendous increase in productivity, some of the benefits of that productivity could go to the working class at the same time as the rest of the benefits would go to the capitalist class. Uh, using the kinds of examples Marx uh, uses, let's suppose uh, we've got a 10-hour working day and we start off and the value of labor power is such uh, as to be six hours and therefore there's four hours of surplus value. Let's suppose the value of labor power declines from six to four uh, that would then give six hours to the capitalist, but the capitalist might be happy with five and a half hours and give half an hour to the worker. And that would mean that there could be a rising physical standard of living of the worker alongside of an increase in relative surplus value for the capitalist. Now, I make this point because one of the arguments made against Marx is this that Marx says that the, that, that the workers are increasingly exploited, that the relative surplus value is increasing. But, they will say, look at the standard of living of workers back in 1850. Look at the standard of living of workers now. They're much better off now than they ever were before. Therefore, Marx's theory of an increasing rate of exploitation is wrong. The answer is, no, it's not wrong. Because, actually, we have to look at the way in which gains from productivity are shared between the two classes. If most of the gain from productivity goes to the capitalist class, there is an increasing rate of exploitation of the working class. But if some of it goes to the working class, there is a rising physical standard of living of the working class. Those Two movements are not are, are quite compatible with each other. And I think one of the things you see when you look back historically is that from about 1860 or 70 onwards, when Marx was writing, at a time when there started to be tremendous increases in productivity, that actually the gains to be had from labor productivity were to some degree shared between the two classes. And that working classes became more affluent because some of the gains went to them. One of the things that's happened since 1970 or so is all of the evidence points to the fact that the gains from productivity change are not being shared. This is a big historical shift. And this, I think, has political significance. But before that, for almost a hundred years, you would say that every time there's a gain in productivity, workers are likely to benefit from the technological change to some degree. But that is not, does not mean that there's a less level of exploitation and a lower rate of surplus value. 
this is a very important, like I say, it's a very important argument. So you can say a rising point, a, ra a rising rate of exploitation of, of working people went on from 1860 to 1970, but an increasing standard of living of at least certain segments of the working class was compatible with that. But since then, we've had a shift, which is what the neoliberal order has been about and what austerity politics has been about and, 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 and so on. So there is then a great importance attached in this to rising productivity. And in the first part of this chapter on concept of relative surplus value, Marx is focusing on what I've been talking about. He hasn't gone into some of these other questions which I'm raising, but he has at least laid out the definition where he says, I call that surplus value, which is on page 432, which is produced by the lengthening of the working day absolute surplus value. In contrast to this, I call that surplus value which arises from the curtailment of the necessary labor time and from the corresponding alteration in the respective length of the two components of the working day relative surplus value. In order to make the value of labor power go down, the rise in the productivity of labor must seize upon those branches of industry whose products determine the value of labor power and consequently either belong to the category of normal means of subsistence or are capable of replacing them. Now, this covers not only the direct reduction in value that comes with, uh, say, higher productivity in the making of shirts, it also carries through the higher productivity in making uh, the cotton cloth that goes into the shirts. So that Marx then talks about, well, this increasing productivity is covering the inputs, the constant capital, as well as uh, the surplus uh, value part. But then he shifts and says something else. And here I'm going to interpolate something, which is uh, the following question. Why would somebody engage in technological change and go through the bother of technological innovation if the benefits of that technological innovation go to all capitalists? Because the form of relative surplus value we're looking at when we're looking at the reduction in the value of labor power is it's not, the, it's not my value labor, of, of labor power that goes down, it's everybody's. So I don't gain any competitive advantage at all. In fact, if I innovate in a wage goods sector and the value of labor power comes down, then I put in a lot of effort for the benefit of the whole class. Why would I, as an individual entrepreneur, do that? I'm in competition with the rest of the capitalist class, but I'm benefiting them by what I've done. Now, it's not as if there's some great preachers who go around to all capitalists and say, you know, innovate, innovate, innovate for the benefit of the whole class. I don't think you've seen much of that. 
So the big question is, why do capitalists innovate when the benefits from the innovation are only marginally gained by them, but actually widespread, in fact, throughout the whole capitalist class? Why would they do that? And Marx's answer is, I'm not thinking about them doing that at all. They innovate for their own reasons, and their own reasons are about creating an alternative kind of relative surplus value. So there are two forms of relative surplus value in this chapter, and we now come to the second form. And he introduces it in the following way, on page 433, because he's got a, a problem here, and he's going to have to slide into it. It is not, he says, our intention here to consider the way in which the imminent laws of capitalist production manifest themselves in the external movement of the individual capitals, assert themselves as the coercive laws of competition, and therefore enter into the consciousness of the individual capitalist as the motives which drive him forward. He's trying to say here there is another motivation for technological change which has nothing to do with what we've just been discussing. Which enters into as motives, driving the capitalist forward. A scientific analysis, he says, of competition is possible only if we can grasp the inner nature of capital, just as the apparent motion of heavenly bodies are intelligible only to someone who is acquainted with their real motions, which are not perceptible to the senses. Nevertheless, for the understanding of the production of relative surplus value, and merely on the basis of the results already achieved, we may add the following remarks. Now, Marx intended to write a book about competition. He never wrote it. Like, he intended to write one about the state, about the international economy. He never wrote, you know, if you kind of, kind of look at all of the books he intended to write, I mean, Mega is already about 140 volumes. Well, you can triple that if, you, if he'd actually written everything he intended to write. But, the, the coercive laws of competition, and I, I've mentioned this before, come up again and again in capital, and the question of competition is important because it has a very important role to play. And this is one of the moments where he cannot advance the analysis without saying something about competition, even though he wants to leave it to a book to come later. But he's got to say something about it here because competition plays a very important role. And it, is, it works this way. If an individual capitalist innovates and actually ends up with a very sophisticated production system in which the value, the individual value, is very low because of the innovation, then they can sell at the social value, which is relatively high, because the social value is that value of a commodity across all producers. And if you have a million producers and they're all using the same technology, 
and I'm the one producer that has a superior technology, then the value in the market is the social value, and I sell at the social value, but I produce at my individual value, which is much less. Therefore, I get a huge amount of relative surplus value because my technology is much more productive than the social average. Which means I get excess profit, so I get excess social value. All right? As it Marx puts it, the individual value of these articles is now below their social value. In other words, they have cost less labor time than the great bulk of the same article produced under the average social conditions. The real value of a commodity is not its individual, but its social value. That is to say, its value is not measured by the labor time that the article costs the producer in each individual case but by the labor time socially required for its production. If, therefore, the capitalist who applies the new method sells his commodity at its social value of one shilling, he sells it for threepence above its individual value, and thus he realizes an extra surplus value of three pence. On the other hand, the working day of 12 hours is now represented for him by 24 articles instead of 12. Hence, in order to get rid of the product of one working day, the demand must be double what it was. It, it's often interesting seeing how Marx, when he's got something, suddenly says, well, there might be a problem about demand, but we've assumed, right, that there's no problem about actually realizing the value in the market. I.e., the market must become twice as extensive. Other things being equal, the capitalist commodities can only command a more extensive market if their prices are reduced. He will therefore sell them above their individual, but below their social value. By this means, he still squeezes an extra surplus value out of each. This augmentation of surplus value is pocketed by the capitalist himself. So this is the individual form of relative surplus value. Whether or not his commodities belong to the class of necessary means of subsistence. So this applies no matter whether you're producing wage goods or luxury goods. Hence, quite independently of this, uh, there is a motive for each individual capitalist to cheapen his commodities by increasing the productivity of labor. Okay, so the consciousness of the capitalist in competition is, I, okay, if I can get a better, more sophisticated system of production, then I'm going to get relative surplus value. I'm going to get excess surplus value. Even if I have to reduce the value a little bit so the market can bear uh, the increased output. Then Marx goes on to say, however, this extra surplus value vanishes as soon as the new method of production is generalized. For then the difference between the individual value of the cheapened commodity and its social value vanishes. The law of the determination of value by labor time makes itself felt to the individual capitalist who applies the new method of production 
by compelling him to sell his goods under their social value. This same law, acting as a coercive law of competition, here it comes again, coercive laws of competition come on back again and again, forces his competitors to adopt the new method. Now you can see what happens here. An entrepreneur finds a new way to do something. In a little while, people look around and say, oh God, that guy's making excess profits. He's selling below the social value. I'm losing money. What is that person doing? Oh, they've got a new machine. Can I get a new machine? And in fact, the consciousness of the capitalist then gets round to the idea that actually new techniques of production are absolutely crucial to main a competitive, contain a competitive advantage. Because what this produces, this process that Marx is talking about in the coercive laws of competition produces, are leapfrogging innovations. I innovate. I get relative surplus value for a short period until everybody catches up with me. But then somebody says, oh, yeah, they got excess profit by innovating. I'm going to look around and see if I can innovate too. And if I can innovate, I'll get excess profits. And then they get excess profits, and then I look and I say, oh my God, they're getting excess profits. I've got to catch up with them. Or I get an even better innovation. And to the degree that capitalists become conscious of this process, they internalize the idea of progressive technological change as being foundational to what it is that they do. They don't care about the social form of relative surplus value. They can't care about it because it's the social form. So whether this affects the value of labor power or not is irrelevant to them. What enters into their consciousness is that they can benefit from technological advantage. And therefore, technological advantage becomes absolutely central to what a capitalist economy is always about. Technological innovation becomes, at a certain point, a fetish. A fetish belief. And it produces something which is very strange. Which is this. Machines are constant capital. Constant capital is constant because it cannot produce value. But you can see that machines, particularly superior machines, can be a source of relative surplus value. So actually, capitalists start to think machines are a source of value. Because they are a source of relative surplus value to them. The superior machines provide the advantages, which are ephemeral until other people use the same machines. So that produces a fetish belief that machines are productive. And actually, most of the people in this audience probably have had that fetish belief. We all, we, we, we all tend to think that machines are productive. But Marx says they're not because they're constant capital and constant capital. But the application of that form of constant capital machine gives individual capitalists 
that advantage which yields them relative surplus value. So the idea that machines are productive is not a stupid idea. It's not a fantasy. It has a real basis, but its real basis is that it helps you, the machine helps you gain relative surplus value until everybody has the same machine. Then somebody comes along, and if I'm smart, I'm going to say I'm going to look around for an even better machine. And I'm going to invent machines for this purpose. And actually, if you go back and you start to read the writings of entrepreneurs of various kinds, you see that this is what they were interested in doing. So this is, Mar this is Marx's theory of relative surplus value. The consequence, however, is this. As he says on 436-47, capital, therefore, has an imminent drive and a constant tendency toward increasing the productivity of labor in order to cheapen commodities, and by cheapening commodities, to cheapen the worker himself. So that productivity gains, and if you go to the capitalist press, constant discussion of gains in productivity, measures increasing productivity of labor. And how is that going to be done? And what is it, what is it about? But, as Marx kind of says, the absolute value of a commodity is in itself of no interest to the capital who produces it. All that interests him is the surplus value, which can be realized. Realization of the surplus value necessarily carries with it the replacement of the value advanced. Why does the capitalist, whose sole concern is to produce exchange value, continually strive to bring down the exchange value of commodities. And this is one of the contradictions which are central to the system. So that's the theory of relative surplus value. Important to recognize. There's the individual form of it, which is what motivates the capitalist, and there's a social form of it. But as I've mentioned, the social form of it is not simply determined by the productivity of labor. It's a very important part, but there are other means as well. For example, in the 19th century, and we're going to, we've already seen this to some degree in the chapter on the working day, The capitalist industrialist class was interested in reducing the value of labor power. How could it do that? Well, if you could get cheap bread and reduce the cost of bread, basic, then you could actually reduce wages. How could you reduce the cost of bread? Free trade in agricultural commodities. Cheap wheat imported from the United States and Canada and Argentina and wherever. Tariff policy. Walmart. And this is a crazy thing about some of Trump's politics. But if he starts putting 
tariffs on cheap imports from China, the people who are going to have to pay the tariffs are the working people. Which means at some point or other, either their well-being is going to deteriorate and you're going to be, have to pay them less, or you're going to have to raise wages to cover the fact that the Walmart economy is no longer a cheap economy. Actually, there are all sorts of other, other interesting features. Taxation policy. Uh, sales taxes on food. Okay, so you don't have sales taxes on food. In many countries, you'll find all kinds of exemptions on sales taxes. Children's clothing, food. That is, there are taxation ways in which you can intervene. So this question of, of what the value of labor power is depends on a whole range of factors, but Marx has selected that one which is crucial to understanding something about the dynamics of a capitalist economy. Because what he's done here is to set up an understanding of something, which is that technological change and organizational, technological and organizational change, increasing the productivity of labor, is a crucial feature of any capitalist economy. Now, most other theories of technological change are what we would say exogenous, they're outside. A brilliant entrepreneur had a brilliant idea and decided to go, you know, that kind of stuff. And Marx is saying, no, there is a theory of technological change which is internal to the capitalist dynamics. It's internalized within it, and it's internalized within the consciousness of the capitalist class. And here's the mechanism that does it. And that mechanism is, of course, the coercive laws of competition. If you didn't have the coercive laws of competition, this wouldn't work. So the coercive laws of competition, with this mechanism, explain why capitalism is necessarily and inevitably technologically dynamic. It cannot be anything else. And it also explains why we get some of these fetish beliefs about technological fixes, technological change. We've got a problem. What's the answer? Technology is the answer. And of course, Marx is actually setting up the point that technological change is also the problem. But is it an answer for a very, very simple kind of reason that it's internal to the dynamics of capital. And this whole kind of theory that capitalism is about brilliant, innovative entrepreneurs who do things just because they felt like it, and then these things get taken up, and history is a kind of accidental kind of set of processes. No. This is systematic, and it's internalized within the capitalist logic. It's within the capitalist mode of production. That capitalist mode of production is constantly revolutionary. And Marx and Engels had spotted this in the communist, 
manifesto saying, you know, this is internal, it's obviously internal, but they didn't explain why it wasn't internal. What Marx has done here is to explain why capitalism is necessarily and inevitably technologically dynamic and that therefore one of the key features of a capitalist economy is increasing the productivity of labor. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is irrelevant to Marx's argument. It just is. This is the way things are. And this is the way things are going to be. And it was this, of course, that led the Chinese who needed desperately to increase the productivity of labor to unleash the coercive laws of competition. Because that's the mechanism which generates all of this. So this then leads into three chapters. The three chapters are about the different ways in which relative surplus value can be achieved. The first is about cooperation. The second is about division of labor. And the third is about machinery in the factory system. Uh, so the next two or 300 pages, uh, actually from 438, uh, yeah, 250 pages almost, Marx is going to be talking about the technical ways in which relative surplus value can be created. Obviously, the big way is going to be the third chapter of this, which is about machinery and the factory system. The first two chapters, 13 and 14, on cooperation and division of labor, are essentially about saying, how do you gain relative surplus value on the basis of technologies which have been inherited from the past? And the first chapter, then, is on cooperation. Uh, cooperation is not something which is confined to capital. Cooperation is something which has existed. But in all of these chapters, what Marx does is to say there is something which pre-exists the capitalist mode of production. But what pre-exists has to be transformed and embedded in a capitalist form. So cooperation is universal to human action. But it takes a very specific form within a capitalist mode of production. And let's then look at this. Unless does anyone have any kind of questions about the relative surplus value you want to raise right now? Because this is a very important issue. Yeah. Very briefly, relation to Do you have the? Sorry. Okay. 
so very briefly, in relationship to machinery, we say that the relative surplus value can be produced by machines. In an earlier lecture, Tim, uh, you used the term, what's it, uh, the kind of common or, sorry, the constant capital. Um, so if I were to try to explain this concept that machines don't create value to a layman, Well, it's that, that capital which comes to you and already has, has a value and you're going to use it. And that value has to be replicated and, and uh, preserved through production. So the value of the machine has to be, uh, if it lasts 10 years, one-tenth of the value of the machine goes into the product. But it doesn't in itself. And it's not as if you can sort of imagine uh, a machine going to, to work and, and, and on its own. Now this raises some problems and somebody immediately say, well, what about artificial intelligence and all the rest of it? Well, okay, we'll get to that later, but if everything was artificial intelligence, <laughs> well, we, we wouldn't be, we'd be in a very, very different kind of world. So yes, there are, there are issues uh, about this, but the general point Marx is making is that the, the raw materials that go into production don't sort of rise up and make anything. The machine doesn't rise up and make anything. It's all animated by labor. And labor is the fire-giving form, as Marx calls it, which creates value. And the machine does not create value. But it can be a source of relative surplus value to you if you have a better machine than everybody else. But it's only during that period when you have a better machine than everybody else that you get the relative surplus value. As soon as everybody else gets the same machine, then you lose, you lose the relative surplus value. Which says then if you want to get relative surplus value, you've got to go invent yourself another machine, which is even better than the last one. Any other kind of comments about relative surplus value? I think it's a very important, like I said, it's a very important chapter, and, and, and it needs, you need to kind of get it consolidated, because otherwise you'll not get what, what's, com what's coming. Though, though what's coming is a long, and in some instances, people will claim rather tedious, uh, exploration of the different ways in which relative surplus value can be created. It's not only by machinery, uh, and I think Marx's theory of technological change is that it's not simply technology, it's also organizational form. But the organizational form is as important as the technology. Cooperation, for example, is not a new technology. Cooperation is that the mobilization of an organizational form to raise the productivity of labor. So once we get into this, we, the organizational, the technology is that given by the handicraft trades, uh, which uh, is going to lead to the creation of a, a distinctive phase in the mode of production, which is what Marx calls the manufacturing phase. 
and of course, the main thing that is going to come up here is the question of economies of scale. That putting, you know, 10 people working together can do more than 10 times what individuals working alone can do. And there are certain tasks which they, 10 people working together can do, which one individual can't do. So that uh, we've got immediately, as Marx says on 441, even without an alteration in the method of work, the simultaneous employment of a large number of workers produces a revolution in the objective conditions of the labor process. Uh, and Marx talks about all sorts of economies that come uh, from uh, putting many people together in the, in the same room and the same factory. Uh, and as he says, uh, the value of the means of production concentrated for use in common on a large scale does not increase in direct proportion to their extent and useful effect. Uh, the economy and the application of the means of production arises entirely out of their joint consumption in the labor process by many workers. So economies of scale uh, are important. Uh, as he says, when numerous workers work together side by side in accordance with the plan, whether in the same process or in different but connected processes, this form of labor is called cooperation. So what this means is that not only do we have here uh, an intrinsic have have here an increase in the productive power of the individual by means of cooperation, but the creation of a new productive power which is intrinsically a collective one. So this is Marx talking about okay, cooperation has always been around, but on the other hand, the way capital mobilizes it uh, is to create something called the collective laborer and the collective labor. And collective labor has different qualities uh, to simply cooperation in this traditional form. And this new power uh, arises from the fusion of many forces into a single force. Mere social contact begets in most industries a rivalry and a stimulation of the animal spirits, which heightens the efficiency of each individual worker. This is why a dozen people working together will produce far more. Uh, in their collective working day of 144 hours and 12 isolated men each working for 12 hours. Uh, this allows also for, for speed up, uh, for the quickening of the production processes, and there are some production processes that need uh, to be uh, covered in a, very in a very short period of time. That can only be done by collective laborer working. So the collective laborer uh, and collective labor becomes a means of production, which is uh, much superior uh, to that which can be dealt with by individuals. And uh, Marx actually then talks about uh, agglomeration economies. This is on page 446, that bringing many people together in a, in a, in a region uh, has uh, importance. Uh, and uh, there's, there's a, the interesting, for me anyway, uh, about the spatial organization of all of this, bringing people together uh, geographically, uh, and, and what the conditions of uh, communication are, and what the relations are within, within the cooperative. But the central point that he makes is this, 
the special productive power of the combined working day is under all circumstances the social productive power of labor or the productive power of social labor. This power arises from cooperation itself. So cooperation produces an excess of power. When the worker cooperates in a planned way with others, he strips off the fetters of his individuality and develops the capabilities of his species. Now I'm going to draw attention to this. He strips off the fetters of his individuality and develops the capabilities of his species. Now, one of Marx, one of the ways in which Marx, and I've mentioned this before, is often depicted is somebody who doesn't believe in individualism. Somebody who believes you should submerge into the collective, into the state, and you forget about your individualism. What Marx is doing here is to say, actually, the isolated individual is fettered in some way and, and is not realizing their true capabilities. And when he talks about the individual stripping off the fetters of his individuality and developing the capabilities of his species, he's saying basically as individuals we become more complete in who we are through cooperative, collaborative work, mutual aid and all, all the rest of it. And that therefore, actually the isolated individual is a fettered individual. And in, his, in effect, Marx is kind of saying, if, you want to, if the individual wishes to be emancipated, emancipation lies through developing the capability of the species. And one of those capabilities is collective labor. That as an individual, you can realize more through the exercise of cooperation than you can. So he's, these, these little phrases in Marx, I think, are important to, to dwell upon. Uh, now he then talks a little bit, then, about how this cooperation is organized. Go back a little bit to how Marx approached the question of the labor process. The first six or seven pages of that chapter are really about the nobility of the labor process and about its creativity. It's about its incorporation of imagination into production and the like. And then there's that phase where he says, well, okay, now we'll turn to our would-be capitalist, where all of that positive energy, if you like, is suddenly captured by capital and turned into a vehicle for the production and realization of surplus value for the capitalist. So you go from, a, if you like, a positive ambience as to what the labor process is all about, to its negation under capitalist relations into something which is only to the benefit of the capitalist class. In each one of the chapters that follows, we're going to find the same sort 
lots of things going on. The initials part of, co of, of cooperation has this passage, right, about, okay, you're realizing your species being by collaborating mutually with others, making things together, doing things. And there's all this kind of positive ambiance. And then we come to the question of, oh, how is this positivity taken over by capital? And what does capital do to it? And by the time you get to the end of the chapter, you're saying, you know, basically capital has screwed it up. It's, it's taken all that positivity and mobilized it to a purpose which is not that of the laborer, but is that of capital. So here's, here's a positive possibility which is converted into something else. So, let's see how he says this. Concentration of large masses of the means of production in the hands of individual capitalists is a material condition for the cooperation of wage laborers. And the extent of cooperation or the scale of production depends on the extent of this concentration. So the capitalist brings together the workers and brings them in together in such a way that they are subject to, they, be, they become as if the subjection of labor to capital is a formal result of the fact that the worker, instead of working for himself, works for and consequently under the capitalist. In so doing, the capitalist organizes a directing authority. in order to secure the harmonious cooperation of the activities of individuals and to perform the general functions that have their origin in the motion of a total productive organism as distinguished from the motion of its separate organs. And Marx introduces a single violin player is his own conductor. An orchestra requires a separate one. The work of directing, superintending and adjusting becomes one of the functions of capital. From the moment that the labor under capitalist control becomes cooperative. As a specific function of capital, the directing function acquires its own special characteristics. And he then talks about the purpose of capitalist production and the capitalist organization of cooperation is the self-valorization of capital to the greatest possible extent. But this then produces, Marx says, resistance to the domination of capital on the part of the worker. And there is therefore an unavoidable antagonism between the exploiter, the capitalist class, and the raw material of his exploitation, i.e. the worker. The cooperation of wage laborers is entirely brought about by the capital that employs them. Their unification into one single productive body and the establishment of a connection between their individual functions lies outside their competence. These things are not their own act, but the act of capital that brings them together and maintains them in that situation. Hence the interconnection between their various labors confronts them in the realm of ideas as a plan drawn up by the capitalist and in practice as his authority 
as the powerful will of a being outside them who subject, subjects their activity to his purpose. Now, a lot of the literature, of course, about worker control is about organizing cooperation and mutual aid outside of the power of capital. But here's Marx kind of saying, well, when capital gets hold of this capacity for cooperation, it does it in a way in which capital's process of valorization is in form purely despotic, comes a form of despotism. So something that is positive and about the realization of species being an individuality is turned into something which is despotism. And then Marx talks about different forms of cooperation. But an industrial army of workers under the command of, the cap under command of capitalists requires, like a real army, officers, managers, and NCOs, foremen, overseers, who command during the labor process in the name of capital. And this function of direction, which is made necessary by the capitalists, is produces an antagonistic relation. It is not because he is a leader of industry that a man is a capitalist. On the contrary, he is a leader of industry because he is a capitalist. The leadership of industry is an attribute of capital. Just as in feudal times, the functions of general and judge were attributes of landed property. And here Marx makes a very important comment on what's going on. Their cooperation, the cooperation of laborers under this situation, only begins with the labor process. But by then they have ceased to belong to themselves. On entering the labor process, they are incorporated into capital. As cooperators, as members of a working organism, they merely form a particular mode of existence of capital. Hence, the productive power developed by the worker socially is the productive power of capital. The socially productive power of labor develops as a free gift. I'll come back again to this notion of the free gift of labor. It's a free gift to capital whenever the workers are placed under certain conditions. And it is capital which places them under these conditions. Because this power, this is the power of cooperation and release of animal spirits and all these sorts of things, because this power costs capital nothing, while on the other hand it is not developed by the worker until his labor itself belongs to capital, it appears, always watch out when Marx says appears, it appears as a power which capital possesses by its nature, a productive power inherent in capital. In other words, you're taking a free gift of labor and you're converting it into something which appears as a gift, as a power of capital. This is one of the forms of appropriation that's going on. It's in a form of exploitation in which the free gift is the power of collaboration and cooperation and the realization of a species being and all of that. That's the free gift, which capital expropriates and then says, this is what I do. This is why 
I am so great is because I have invented this power of collaboration and cooperation. And then Marx goes into sort of historical situations where the power of cooperation was not under the command of capital. And then kind of says these were other forms of society with other forms of cooperation, not necessarily nice or unexploitative, but you know, that's what made the pyramids, that's what made all kinds of things. And so you get just a few uh, examples of this. The starting point, however, in this instance, coincides with the birth of capital itself. If then, on the one hand, the capitalist mode of production is a historically necessary condition for the transformation of the labor process into a social process, so, on the other hand, this social form of the labor process is a method employed by capital for the more profitable exploitation of labor by increasing its productive power through cooperation. Simple cooperation, he says, has always been and continues to be the predominant form in those branches of production in which capital operates on a large scale. Cooperation remains the fundamental form of the capitalist mode of production, although in its simple shape it continues to appear as one particular form alongside the more developed ones. So the capturing of the capacity of cooperation, which is the power of labor, is the first step in the formation of a capitalist mode of production under the domination and the despotic control of the capitalist. Now, Marx, I think, is here saying cooperation is a power of labor. The implication, of course, is get capital out of the picture liberate the powers of cooperation under the control of the laborers. And this is obviously one of the features that would come out of this. Marx doesn't talk about this here. It is sort of mentioned elsewhere, but that's an obvious implication. So that's the story of cooperation. Let's get then into the division of labor and manufacture. I think this is one of the best chapters in Capital. I think it's a fantastic chapter. Um, interestingly, when I first was teaching Capital back in 1970, uh, the main interest on the left was, of course, conditions of factory labor, which is chapter 15. Questions of the division of labor and manufacture. Marx is talking about the labor process, uh, which is prior to the Industrial Revolution. And therefore, it, it, it's sort of a historical chapter of what things looked like in the 17th and 18th century before the Industrial Revolution and the factory system and all the rest of it. And so the main things we would talk about in 1970 were indeed what was going on in chapter 15. And this was seen as interestingly historical and all the rest of it. I have to say I now look at it in a different light. Because actually, to the degree that the factory system has been disaggregated and diminished and all the rest of it, and we've got all these 
new systems of cooperation and 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 you know uh, the gig economy and precarity and uh, all sorts of other labor systems which are emerging. It seems to me that this chapter is actually capturing something very important. You just can't take it and say, oh, it's just gone back to being like this. No, but the elements of what we're living today are, I think, in many respects, well taken up in this chapter. And this chapter is, is, is beautifully organized. Because what Marx does is to say, I'm not dealing in a theory here which is abstracted from somewhere about division of labor. I'm dealing with the practices on the ground of divisions of labor and how they can be theorized. And I think that's exactly what we have to do today. We have to look at, you know, Uber. We have to look at the sharing economy. We have to look at all these different ways in which cooperation is mobilized. Look at how our cooperation was mobilized in information technology in the early period and how it's been appropriated and all the rest of it under capital and so on. And, and, and in a sense, it's partly the method here that Marx deploys. All right, let's look at how divisions of labor are set up within a capitalist mode of production. And let's then try to theorize what this is all about and how it contributes to the creation of relative surplus value and what it's about. And I think this is a, it's a brilliant chapter. I mean, if I was starting out and wanting to do a thesis uh, on uh, labor processes today, I'd read this chapter about 10 times over and then say, okay, I'm now ready to go out there and start to do the same sort of thing around New York City and around everywhere and, and really figure out what the hell's going on with Uber and with, uh, you know, all these kinds of things and, 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 and subcontracting and, and all the rest of it. Uh, and you'll find many elements of what Marx is talking about back then being resurrected and recreated uh, in the con contemporary gig economy and, and, and the like. So I, I, I think it's many of the issues which Marx comes across in terms of this organization of the divisions of labor in this sort of period of the 17th and 18th centuries. A lot of things that Marx talks about are, I think, of, of, of a great deal of contemporary relevance. And, and I think it, it, is, it is interesting for that reason. Uh, so he starts off then by saying, okay, manufacture and the manufacturing period extends, roughly speaking, from the middle of the 16th century to the last third of the 18th century. Manufacture originates in two ways. One, by the assembling together in one workshop under the control of a single capitalist of workers belonging to various independent handicrafts through whose hands a given article must pass on its way to completion. And he quotes the example of a carriage, uh, building a carriage. Later on, he'll talk about you know, making a locomotive and so on, which you have people of different skills mobilized together in the workshop uh, all of them concentrating on the production of uh, one, one commodity. Manufacturing then goes on to say can also arise in exactly the opposite way 
one capitalist simultaneously employs in one workshop a number of craftsmen who all do the same work, or the same kind of work, such as making paper, type, or needles. So there are these two forms. Uh, no matter what, uh, he says, manufacture either introduces division of labor into a process of production, or further develops that division. On the other hand, it combines together handicrafts that were formerly separate. But whatever may have been its particular starting point, its final form is always the same. A productive mechanism whose organs are human beings. Now, we've often come across this sort of somewhat organic language in Marx. But the organs of this, in this ecosystem, if you want to call it that, which productive ecosystem, are, are human beings. And since they're assembled in this way, uh, it's possible to take the existing technologies and reconfigure them. But in, within it, he says, handicraft remains the basis, a technically narrow basis which excludes a really scientific division of the production process into its component parts. It is precisely because the skill of the craftsman continues to be the foundation of the production process that every worker becomes exclusively assigned to a partial function and that his labor power becomes transformed into the lifelong organ of this partial function. This division of labor, he goes on to say, is a particular sort of cooperation and many of its advantages spring from the nature of cooperation in general not from this particular form of it. So, the handicraft worker still has their, a skill. And that skill has not been displaced by technologies or machines or anything. They still have the power that attaches. But they've been integrated into a production system where their skill is at just one moment. So in making the locomotive or making the, the, the carriage, they are the ones who does this, and they do it for the whole of their life, and their, their skill is embedded in this organic. And it's not a skill that kind of says, okay, well, today I'm working on a carriage, and tomorrow I'm going to be working on somebody's clock and somebody else. No, you're making a particular commodity, and so you become stuck in, in the division of labor in a special way. And this leads Marx to talk a little bit about specialized worker and his tools and the skill of the specialized worker. Uh, and, but again, by virtue of commanding the skill, the specialized worker has a certain monopoly, a certain autonomy, right? Because the capitalists can't displace the skill. They rely upon the skill. But at the same time, the skill, instead of being the sort of skill which an artisan can have pride in and can use in multiple ways, it's now become a skill which is embedded in the organ and it's lost its autonomy. So the skilled worker is, is still skilled, but they have lost their, their autonomy. They are, as it were, embedded within this organic 
as, as a human being and they have a very specific role to play and they just continue to play that role. So this is, uh, if you like, a movement from free skill which is applied however people want in an autonomous kind of way to a non-autonomous organisation of that skill uh, within uh, this organisation of the workshop under the control of the capital. That then leads Marx to discuss the two fundamental forms of manufacture, heterogeneous and organic. The first then is the, uh, uh, the example of the lo locomotive of more than 5,000 independent parts which have to be brought together in the same workshop. Uh, and uh, the, the organization of what that's about. The second kind of manufacture produces articles that go through connected phases of de development uh, go step by step through a series of processes like the wire and the manufacture of needles, which passes through the hands of 72, sometimes even 92 different specialized workers. And he talks about uh, the, the organization uh, of the collective workers uh, in these uh, uh, workshops, which can be of these two types, the coming together of many different skills or just one skill, which is kind of repetitively uh, around the production of the needles. Uh, the, the problem with this is that the, the worker, the, the, the skilled worker becomes, uh, like I said, uh, a cog in a wheel. Uh, as it marks, kind of says, on the other hand, it only accomplishes the social organization of the labor process by riveting each worker to a single fraction of the work. Uh, so that, uh, again, we find uh, uh, the, the, the sort of the role of competition is to push the capitalist to the most efficient configuration of all of those skills put together and to do it in a way that is uh, more and more productive than competitors. Uh, and this uh, in itself uh, means increasing uh, repression of the, of, uh, uh, the, both of the, the workers who, who are the bearers of those skills. Uh, Nevertheless, there is a problem here, and he starts to talk about it on 467. Early, uh, in spite of the many advantages offered by this combination of manufacturers, it never attains a complete technical unity on its own foundation. This unity only arises when it has been transformed into an industry carried on by machinery. So what we're beginning to see here is a kind of uh, a technical capacity which is limited in some way and which is going to, at some point or other, push capital to displace the skill of the worker entirely into the machine so that machine production starts to take over uh, and to break up this system. And we see elements of this, and he, Marx introduces it by kind of saying... Uh, the, the principle of lessening the labor time necessary for the production of commodities was consciously formulated and expressed. 
So the capitalists have already become conscious of the necessity of technological change and technological reorganization. Uh, and the use of machines also appeared sporadically, especially for certain simple primary processes that have to be conducted on a very large scale and with the application of great force. Thus, at an early period in paper manufacture, the tearing up of the rags was done by paper mills. And in metal works, the pounding of the ores was done by stamping mills. And then he has a very interesting passage. The Roman Empire, he says, handed down the elementary form of all machinery in the shape of the water wheel. The handicraft period bequeathed to us the great inventions of the compass, gunpowder, type printing, and the automatic clock. But on the whole, machinery played that subordinate part which Adam Smith assigns to it in comparison with division of labor. In the 17th century, the sporadic use of machinery was of the greatest importance because it supplied the great mathematicians of that time with a practical basis and an incentive towards the creation of modern mechanics. Now, what's going on here? Marx is actually talking here about the beginnings of the organization of a form of production which gives rise to a whole field of intellectual and scientific inquiry. And that intellectual and scientific inquiry is, of course, going to be foundational for the production of machines and the, the transformation of science and technology into a vehicle for capital. But here he's kind of saying, okay, it was tentative in the 17th century, but the sporadic use of machinery supplied the great mathematicians of the time with a practical basis and an incentive towards the creation of modern mechanics. In other words, modern mechanics was not invented out of whole cloth. It didn't arise out of somebody kind of sitting in an academic setting and dreaming of a field called mechanics. This is, this is Marx talking about <clears throat> where scientific method came from and what scientific method was going to be about and what science and technology was going to be about. That suddenly people were looking at these machines and saying, oh, that's interesting. Let's Think about what's going on in this machine, which is very different from thinking about a skill which is going to be passed on through guild apprenticeship. And what we're beginning to look at, and this is going to be important in, of course, the next chapter, is the rise of science and technology in the service of capital. But that rise was not an idealist gesture. It wasn't something that was invented out of people's head. It was something that came from an encounter with an experience, a very important encounter. And the encounter is with these forms of uh, machines that were beginning to be introduced. Then Marx carries on. The collective worker, and so we're back to this notion of the collective worker, formed out of the combination of a number of individual specialized workers, is the item of machinery specifically characteristic of the manufacturing period. In other words, the collective worker was operating as a kind of 
machine. The various operations performed, in turn by the producer of a commodity which coalesced during the labour processes, process, make demands of various kinds upon him. In one operation, I must exert more strength, in another more skill, in another more attention. This is a precursor of Taylorism and time and motion studies and so on. This, people are beginning to look at this whole kind of process. And then he says, after the various operations have been separated, made independent and isolated, the workers are divided, classified and grouped according to their predominant qualities. The collective worker now possesses all the qualities necessary for production in an equal degree of excellence and expends them in the most economical way by exclusively employing all his organs, individualized in particular workers or groups of workers, in performing their special functions. Now remember, this system is in competition with other versions of this system. And then Marx comes back to the one-sidedness and even the deficiencies of the specialised individual worker become perfections when he is part of the collective worker. The habit of doing only one thing converts him into an organ which operates with the certainty of a force of nature, while his connection with the whole mechanism compels him to work with the regularity of a machine. I think Charlie Chaplin read that before he produced Modern Times. Since various functions performed by the collective worker can be simple or complex, high or low, the individual labour powers, his organs, require different degrees of training and must therefore possess very different values. Manufacture therefore develops a hierarchy of labour powers to which there corresponds a scale of wages. You're now disaggregating the working class in terms of a scale of wages. The individual workers are appropriated and annexed for life by a limited function, while the various operations of the hierarchy of labour powers are parcelled out among workers according to both their natural and their acquired capacities. Alongside the gradations of the hierarchy in 470, there appears the simple separation of the workers into skilled and unskilled. So we start to get skilled workers, unskilled workers. For the latter, the unskilled, the cost of apprenticeship vanishes. For the former, it diminishes compared with that required of the craftsman owing to the simplification of the functions. In both cases, the value of labour power falls. An exception to this law occurs whenever the decomposition of the labour process gives rise to new and comprehensive functions, which either did not appear at all in handicrafts or not to the same extent. The relative devaluation of labour power caused by the disappearance or reduction of the expenses of apprenticeship directly implies a higher degree of valorization of capital. For everything that shortens the necessary labour time required for the reproduction of labour power extends the domain of surplus labour. So in this instance, it's the diminution of the costs of production of labour power through apprenticeship systems and the, the like. And that the training is, becomes less onerous because you've, you're increasingly moving 
towards a system where workers can just simply be trained as cogs in a machine, even though they may have certain skills, then the cost of that worker's training is reduced, and therefore this system produces relative surplus value for the capitalist. So Marx then talks about the foundations of different forms, and there's an interesting geographical kind of differentiation between town and country and territorial organization, which I find fascinating as a geographer, but which most other people don't bother with. Uh, but we then get to what I think is the crux of matter. Marx is going to talk a lot about the, the difference between the division of labor within the workshop and the division of labor within society in general. And these have two entirely different activities. Within the workshop, you get the following. That the planned and regulated a priori system on which the deliver, uh, division of labor is implemented within the workshop becomes in the division of labor within society an a posteriori necessity imposed by nature, controlling the unregulated caprice of the producers and perceptible in the fluctuations of the barometer of market prices. Division of labor within the workshop implies the undisputed authority of the capitalist over men, who are merely the members of a total mechanism which belongs to him. The division of labor within society brings into contact independent producers of commodities who acknowledge no authority other than that of competition, of the coercion, here comes the coercion again, the coercion exerted by the pressure of their reciprocal interests, just as in the animal kingdom the war of all against all more or less preserves the conditions of existence of every species. And then Marx had, can't resist a little commentary. The same bourgeois consciousness which celebrates the division of labor in the workshop, the lifelong annexation of the worker to a partial operation, and his complete subjection to capital as an organization of labor that increases its productive power, denounces with equal vigor every conscious attempt to control and regulate the process of production socially, as an inroad upon such sacred things as the rights of property, freedom, and the self-determining genius of the individual capitalist. It is very characteristic that the enthusiastic apologists of the factory system have nothing more damning to urge against a general organization of labor in society than it would turn the whole society into a factory. So the Koch brothers, who organize chemical industries in a kind of totally despotic, planned, right down to the last detail way, if you say, well, we should do that with the whole of society, scream, I guess, how this is of an infringement of the rights of property and individuality and all the rest of it. And, and say, basically, oh, you want to turn the whole country into my factory? Well, why don't they critique the factory? I mean, you know, I mean, this is it's very interesting. I mean, how, you know, the big capitalists, 
who, who actually plan as an a priori, as Mark's talking about here, plan down to the latest detail, everything, input, output, structures, uh, you know. And at some point, somebody comes along and says, well, if you can do that within a complicated factory system, you know, across multiple divisions of labor with huge labor forces, if Foxconn can employ 1.5 million laborers in a kind of a uh, sophisticated system producing, you know, everything and very efficiently and all a priori structures of, of command and control and everything else, why couldn't you do that in the whole of society? And actually there was a very interesting moment when that in effect happened, and I invite you to go look at it, which is the US economy in World War II. In World War II, you had a war effort. How is it going to be organized? Well, Roosevelt called all the corporate heads and said, basically, organize the US economy the same way you organize your factories. That's how the war effort was set up. Immense increase in productivity, immense increase in output. It was, I mean, the corporations were so nervous about this that, of course, they immediately launched the anti-communist, uh, you know, McCarthyite uh, struggle because they didn't want, because they saw that their power depended upon, you know, the organization of the factory in the way that Marx is talking about. But the one thing they didn't want was the whole economy to be organized that way, because then it could be organized to a social purpose rather than to the relative surplus value which they were going to, you know, which they were extracting left, right, and center, even in the, under conditions of the Great Depression. So, you know, this is, a, this is a very interesting way of setting it up and to look at it. In the society where the capitalist mode of production prevails, anarchy in the social division of labor and despotism in the manufacturing division of labor mutually condition each other. Coordination in the market, the coercive laws of competition, is the realm of, you know, freedom, anarchy, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it's contrasted with the organization of divisions of labor within the enterprise, within the factory, within the factory system. And those two modes of the division of labor are integrated with each other within capitalism. In Internally, and they just go back, the division of labor within manufacture presupposes a concentration of the means of production in the hands of one capitalist. So it can only happen when you've got the Koch brothers or whatever it is around. The division of labor within society presupposes a dispersal of those means among many independent producers of commodities. While within the workshop, the iron law of proportionality subjects definite numbers of workers to definite functions, in the society outside the workshop, the play of chance and caprice results in a motley pattern of distribution of the producers and their means of production among the various branches of social labor. It is true that the different spheres of production constantly tend towards equilibrium. On the one hand, every producer of a commodity is obliged to produce a use value, i.e. must satisfy a particular social need, and there exists an inner bond which attaches the different levels of need to a system which has grown up spontaneously. On the other hand, the law of value of commodities, and I, and I think it's important to look at the way in which the law of value 
is pushed by the coercive laws of competition. So when Marx talks about the coercive laws of competition, what are they pushing? They're pushing the law of value. The law of value of commodities ultimately determines how much of its disposable labor time society can expend on each kind of commodity. But this constant tendency on the part of the various spheres of production towards equilibrium comes into play only as a reaction against the constant upsetting of this equilibrium. So in the division of labor of society, you've got this chaotic, anarchic movement which is coordinated through market processes and the coercive laws of competition. Within the, the, the firm, within the corporation, you've got this other form of the division of labor, which is planned down to its last, last detail. So this is one of the key things that Marx puts here. In the last section on the capitalist character of manufacture, we get some more, uh, even more important, well, just as important uh, commentaries. In manufacture, he says, as well as in simple cooperation, the collective work and orga working organism is a form of existence of capital. A, a form of existence of capital. The social mechanism of production which is made up of numerous individual specialized workers, belongs to the capitalist. Hence, the productive power, which results from the combination of various kinds of labor, appears as the productive power of capital. Again, we're getting this idea, the free gifts of the productive power of labor are appropriated by capital and then presented to the world as if they are products of capital. Manufacture thoroughly revolutionizes all of this, seizes labor power by its roots. It converts the worker into a crippled monstrosity by furthering his particular skill as a forcing house through the suppression of a whole world of productive drives and inclinations. Here we go again. The good stuff gets turned around and rendered all negative under the power of capital. Just as in the states of the world of productive drives and inclinations, just as in the... Sorry. And then he goes on. Um, what this results is, it, is that it realizes, says Marx, the absurd fable of Menenius Agrippa, which presents man as a mere fragment of his own body. This is a fantastic sort of way of looking at it. If in the first place the worker sold his labor power to capital because he lacked the material means of producing a commodity, now his own individual labor power withholds its services unless it has been sold to capital. It will continue to function only in an environment which first comes into existence after its sale, namely the capitalist workshop. Unfitted by nature to make anything independently, the manufacturing worker develops his productive activity only as an appendage of that workshop. We've seen again and again this theme. The autonomy of the worker disappears. Now the worker is an appendage of the workshop. The knowledge, judgment, and will, which even though to a small extent are exercised by the independent peasant or handicraftsman, in the same way as the savage makes the whole art of war consist, consist in the exercise of personal cunning, are faculties now required only for the workshop as a whole. The possibility of an intelligent direction 
or production expands in one direction because it vanishes in many others. What is lost by the specialized workers in concentrated in the capital which confronts them. It is a result of the division of labor in manufacture that the worker is brought face to face with the intellectual potentialities of the material process of production as the property of another and as a power which rules over him. That is, the worker who combined mental and manual capacities loses the mental capacities and powers because they become powers which capital appropriates and the worker becomes a mere manual operator in the face of the intellectual power which is going to be held by capital. This process of separation starts in simple cooperation where the capitalist represents to the individual workers the unity and will of the whole body of social labor. It is developed in manufacture which mutilates the worker, turning him into a fragment of himself. It is completed in large-scale industry which makes science a potentiality for production which is distinct from labor and presses it into the services of capital. In manufacture, the social productive power of the collective worker, hence of capital, is enriched through the impoverishment of the worker in individual productive power. Ignorance is the mother of industry as well as superstition. Reflection and fancy are subject to error, but a habit of moving the hand or the foot is independent of either. Manufactures, accordingly, prosper most where the mind is least consulted and where the workshop may be considered as an engine, the parts of which are men. Marx is quoting Ferguson there. As a matter of fact, in the middle of the 18th century, some manufacturers preferred to employ semi-idiots for certain operations which, though simple, were trade secrets. And then Marx quotes Adam Smith. The understandings of the greater part of men, says Adam Smith, are necessarily formed by their ordinary employments. The idea that ideas dominate life. No, life gives rise to ideas. Understandings of the greater part of men are necessarily formed by their ordinary employments. The man whose whole life is spent in performing a few simple operations has no occasion to exert his understanding. He generally becomes as stupid and ignorant as it is possible for a human creature to, to become. And this is Adam, that's quoting Adam Smith. After describing the stupidity of the specialized worker, Adam Smith goes on, the uniformity of his stationary life naturally corrupts the courage of his mind. It corrupts even the activity of his body and renders him incapable of exerting his strength with vigor and perseverance in any other employments than that to which he has been bred. His dexterity at his own particular trade seems in this manner to be acquired at the expense of his intellectual, social, and martial virtues. But in every improved and civilized society, this is the state in which the laboring poor, that is the great body of the people, must necessarily fall. That's Adam Smith. 
for preventing the complete deterioration of the great mass of people which arises from the division of labour, Adam Smith recommends education of the people by the state, but in prudently homeopathic doses. Marx's comment is this. Some crippling of mind, of body and mind is inseparable, even from the division of labour in society as a whole. However, since manufacture carries this social separation of branches of labour much further, and also by its peculiar division, attacks the individual at the very roots of his life, it is the first system to provide the materials and impetus for industrial pathology. Now, this is about the consciousness of labour and what happens to the labourer who is subject to domination, subject to domination, is living in a world where for 10 hours a day they are living under the conditions of divisions of labour within the factory, a repetitive work in which it's very difficult to have the courage of your mind. And what does that mean, politically? And this manufacturing system, which grows up, is, as Marx says, it appears historically as an advance and as a necessary aspect of the economic process of the formation of society. On the other hand, it appears as a more refined and, quote, civilized means of exploitation. Marx is being ironic, of course, about all this. And political economy, which first emerged as an independent science during the period of manufacture, is only able to view the social division of labor in terms of the division found in manufacture as a means of producing more commodities with a given quantity of labor and consequently of cheapening commodities and accelerating the accumulation of capital. That is, the acceleration of the accumulation of capital and the cheapening of commodities rests upon the application and appropriation of these technologies and these organizational forms which actually do great damage to the worker. And I think that this is kind of, again, one of the issues that arises when you start to think about, you know, what happened when China decided to go into the capitalist mode of production to organize this, what did it do uh, to, to workers and to laborers? The closing part is this. The problem, however, is that manufacture was unable either to seize upon the production of society to its full extent or to revolutionize that production to its very core. Here's an interesting way of looking at it. It towered above, up, as an artificial economic construction on the broad foundation of the town handicrafts and the domestic industries of the countryside. At a certain stage of its development, the narrow technical basis on which manufacture rested came into contradiction with requirements of production which it had itself created. <coughs> it is, he says, <coughs> machines. <coughs> Sorry that abolished the role of the handicraftsman as the regulating principle of social production. 
which leads us into the next chapter, which is going to be about machinery and the factory system. But <clears throat> many of these features, the organization of skills and their de-autonomization, if you want to call it that, Uh, look at how the skills that were built up in information technology, which were personal skills, were appropriated by capital <clears throat> and have actually been reconfigured in, into structures of lack of autonomy, domination, how mental skills have been reconfigured, even turned into commodities. So intellectual property rights is now a big issue. Think about all of that. This stuff on the division of labor is actually very, very important. Just to frame, I think, a lot of the things that are going on in our own society right now. It doesn't give you the answers, but it raises all kinds of interesting kind of questions which can be applied to contemporary society which is why I think this is such a fantastic chapter. And I think it's rather beautifully done in the way that Marx always returns to, oh, what's going on in the workshop? What's happening to the consciousness of the capitalist? What's happening to the consciousness of the worker? Being stuck in these repetitive kinds of things where the sense of pride, organisation, possibility and so on is suddenly turned into something which is imprisoned within this despotic organization of cooperation which capital imposes. These are the sorts of questions which all of this, I think, sets up. And I think it's a, it's a fascinating thing. And I, you know, if you go back and you read sections of chap Capital to sort of you know, remind yourself what the hell's going on, uh, this is a very interesting chapter to read and to think about. And again, what's in the background of this, is a value theory which is being imposed by the coercive laws of competition. There's not freedom here. Even the capitalist does not have freedom, right? Because the system now is being driven by the coercive laws of competition, which, if you go back to chapter two of capital, is a system in which no individual capitalist has control. They have to respond to the coercive laws of competition. Capitalists do what they do in here, and they become despotic in the labor process and all the rest of it because they have to be. They don't have a choice. They're not that way, quote, by nature. They're that way by capital's nature. And capital's nature is not what Marx is trying to reveal to us. And part of that nature is, of course, to be technologically dynamic. Part of that nature is to appropriate the free gifts of labor in the form of powers of cooperation, of mental and possible you know, inventiveness and all the rest of it, to appropriate all of that and to say this is a power of capital. And it is a power of capital. And it's therefore something that has to be confronted, as Marx says. It creates opposition and antagonism because workers don't like being put in a situation where they cannot have the courage of their minds 
some point they're going to say, I have the courage of my mind, you know. But we also know situations arise in which it's very difficult to have the courage of your mind because you're so repressed under structures of domination in the labor process and in the social reproduction process that there's no way to go. So this is the sort of uh, thing, and again, comes back to the question, how, you know, we're supposed to be in a society which values freedom and liberty. How much freedom and liberty does the worker have in this whole system? Oh, freedom and liberty is in the market. Not in the labor process, in that sphere where We've got 10 minutes for some discussion. In that, in that sphere in which, you know, nobody is admitted, in that abode in which nobody is admitted, because that's where the secret of capitalist production and valorization resides. And we're probing the secret of valorization and what it's about. And here we're looking at it from that dual perspective of what goes on inside the firm and what goes in inside, what goes on in society in general through the division of labor. So, okay. What would you want to say about it? Or, oh. you have some comments, questions? The social collective uh, worker that Marx is talking about in these chapters, how sort of homogenous was he describing it or, or conceptualizing it? Well, I think in, in, this, in this chapter, I mean, when he says at the end of the chapter on cooperation, that cooperation is basic to all forms of organization of capital. Uh, cooperation as it's captured by capital and used. So to say that the factories disappeared doesn't mean that the cooperation system and the divisions of labor structures have disappeared. Um, the reason the reason I'm I'm, I'm sort of uh, not not diminishing the next chapter, but emphasizing this this chapter is because I think the many of the structures of domination that Marx is talking about in this chapter are more easily applicable to the Starbucks case than the kind of uh, vast factory system that Marx sets up uh, to look at in uh, chapter 15. Uh, and I think that uh, we should pay attention, therefore, to the, 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 co the way capitalist cooperation works, the way in which uh, capitalism works with the division of labor, we should pay as much attention to them in the contemporary uh, labor process studies, say in the US, as we pay traditionally, as the left has traditionally paid to, to factory labor. I mean, I think in the 70s, for example, 
uh, factory labor was the, the kind of thing that most leftists talked about uh, and uh, relegated this to something being historical and I'm kind of saying no we should we should take the contemporary aspects of this not say it's you know we've gone back to the 17th century because that's not true but but that many of the issues that Marx raises I think are actually important to raise uh, right now so I mean how is it that something that's called a sharing economy uh, actually has become a despotic uh, system and you know and you know why and, and, and how, how would we analyze it uh, uh, and uh, particularly in, in, in relationship to these notions of individual liberty and freedom uh, where the right wing is claiming that it's all in favor of individual liberty and freedom provided it's all organized like Uber you know I mean this is the the paradox it seems to me that Marx is is really homing in on and I think it's very well worthwhile paradox uh, to emphasize, I mean, I think the right wing doesn't have a foot to stand on. But when you when you take some of this and project it out, uh, so I I think it's you know the reason the reason I'm emphasizing this is not to say that the factory system has disappeared, because the next chapter would be very great to look at Foxconn and look at those kinds of things. And this, and of course, we we still have plenty of factories around. But the majority of working people these days are not employed in, 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 in factories. They're employed in other, other modes and these structures of domination and cooperation and uh, divisions of labor and all the rest of it are, are I think, uh, very much uh, uh, very central, I think, to looking at a contemporary situation. In, in the um, World War II American um, war economy, uh, what, what happened to the rate of surplus value? I don't know. I haven't uh, ever gone into it. I think that, uh, I mean, World War II is really very uh, interesting. There were a lot of strikes went on in World War II, by the way. And uh, the, the they had to be settled fairly fairly quickly. So there, there was an increase, there were rapid increases in productivity. And one of the ways in which things got got settled uh, in World War II was by actually granting some degree of increase in uh, the value of labor power, put it that way, by by you know providing some more in the way of uh, of uh, money flow to the privileged members of the working class. And after World War II, of course, through the things like the GI Bill and all those sorts of things, the work, you know, there was a privileged white working class which uh, uh, gained considerably in purchasing power and became relatively affluent in terms of use values at command. And the unions were sort of cut in on that. But what's interesting is the way in which the unions negotiated productivity agreements, which the, the, the corporations would say, okay, we're going to introduce uh, these new technologies which are going to raise productivity. And the unions basically said, okay, we won't resist that, we won't go on strike, we're not going to, provided that 
uh, we get an increase in wage, which is we share some of the uh, of the gains to be had from increasing productivity. That kind of tactic, I think, came out of World War II. As far as I, you know, I'm not an expert on labor struggles in World War II and, the, and what happened in the 1940s and 1950s, but it was seen to me that, in general, uh, the, the data, as I've seen it, suggests that uh, productivity gains uh, were part of what a union contract was about. Uh, there were there were two there would be two components to a union contract. One would be uh, cost of living adjustments, which meant that you couldn't reduce the value of labor power by playing games with inflation. Uh, so that that component, but also productivity agreements were very, very important in labor negotiations during the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, but uh, what the rate of surplus value was, I don't know. I don't know how it would be measured. Um, but corporations didn't do badly in World War II, as I, as I recall. They did okay. They came out of it pretty, pretty strong. But they also had to, you know, in terms of uh, you know, production of, uh, say, ocean-going vessels, they had, to, they, they had to organize the steel industry and they had to organize the ship construction industry and they had to organize uh, the coal industry and they had to, you know, they had to organize... Uh, all of industry so that they reached production, had production targets, and a lot of this was being done through a fairly, yeah, fairly loose but nevertheless significant control and command uh, apparatus of the main corporate heads, uh, sort of sitting down in Washington with the, with, the, uh, with Treasury and the like. Hi, um, so I kind of want to break this back to like the, the chapter 12 and the question of relative surplus value. Um, and more of what I was thinking about when I was reading that chapter and thinking about today, we have Donald Trump, uh, kind of the buffoon and president, but he, he got, you know, most of his money through real estate, you know, real estate capital. Uh, and in kind of the response um, to him has been a lot of people looking for those kind of rational entrepreneurs that kind of run for 2020. Uh, and one of them is Andrew Yang, and, and he's actually asking for a UBI, uh, universal basic income as a way to kind of stave off a crisis that may occur once automation comes in, once AI completely takes over. So like this technological fix now, you see in Silicon Valley, is this kind of like idea that we're gonna have an economy without workers. Right. Yeah, and you have Amazon is already automating. I used to work at UPS, so the automization of the warehouses and the cars and yeah. stuff like that. So I don't know, I just wanna see if, if reading Marx in chapter 12 can help us think about these questions differently. To, to approach maybe a rational entrepreneur running for president in 2020 um, from a different angle. Well, the interesting thing about, about chapter 12, it seems to me, is that the dynamics of uh, all of this technological change uh, are not rationally calculated in relationship to the needs of the macroeconomic situation. They're driven by individual corporate seeking for a particular advantage. What you start to get at a certain point, and this comes through more in the Grundrisse than in capital, is that once it becomes established that gaining relative surplus value in the form that Marx describes it 
in the second part of in the second form, individual form, once that becomes established in the consciousness of the capitalist as being a necessary kind of condition, then you will get uh, the technological change for the sake of technological change, no matter what. Technology be becomes, as Marx says in volume two, in, in the Grundrisse and also in volume two of Capital, uh, a business in which because, so, so it's no longer a situation where you wait for some problem to arise in, in a particular field and you then find a technological response, you get into technological change for technological change's sake. So as soon as you invent a computer, you then start saying, well, is there a generic way in which I can actually start to use the computer as being uh, the business of technology, which is going to be everything will become computerized. And yeah, that's what you do. So you've got a, a dynamic of technological change that has now become almost fetishized within the dynamic of capital. And it's become a business in its own right in which people will go out and invent techno new technologies for the sake of new technologies and hope they'll stick. And you see this with, you know, every, you know, all these people who go out and set up companies and hope to design an app which will be bought out by one of the big ones for half a million dollars or two million dollars down the line, you know. So, so, so you've, you've got a, the business of, of making new technologies. So capital now is in a situation in which you're going to get technological change because it's embedded in, in systemically. It has applications, it raises productivity. Nobody's going to say progress is a bad thing, that technological progress is a bad thing. We generally accept in the whole society that technological change is inevitable. Technological change is a good thing. It has some unfortunate byproducts, but we can deal with all of them. So that's the situation which we've now now created, which is rather different from what Mark, where Marx was. But what I think Marx is doing is going back to the origins of all of this and saying, okay, this is how it all began. And why it is that the capitalist, individual capitalist acting in their own self-interest produces a result which is not necessarily good from the standpoint of the macroeconomic situation. And as we know, a lot of the causes of crises are forms of technological change, which have, have certain you know, in, in implications. And the idea develops, of course, that there's a technological fix to everything, uh, which is an idea we're going to encounter uh, next week. So next week, just to announce uh, what we're going to do next week, we're going to get as far as we can through the chapter on machinery. I'm going to take two weeks out of the chapter on machinery uh, because it's very long. And uh, somebody once said to me, they got through the chapter three on money and, 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 and the, all right, but the, where they gave up was the chapter on machinery because it's so damn long and so complicated that it just... But there's a very important footnote, uh, which is uh, footnote, what is it? Uh, let me give you a precise, it's a... It's uh, in this, so it's on page uh, 493 in this edition, and it's footnote four, which is a longish footnote. 
And I think it's a crucial footnote because in some way, in a peculiar kind of way, it's actually a definition, as far as Marx ever did give a definition of what historical materialism might mean. And we need to look at that. So look carefully at that, uh, this footnote. Uh, and Marx invokes there, as he does elsewhere, parallels with Darwin and uh, things like that. So let's, so we can, so we can start off by looking at that footnote and then, and then we'll get as far as we can into the chapter. Uh, so whatever you do, look carefully at the footnote and then we'll probably get about halfway through the chapter because, uh, like I say, it's nearly 200 pages long. So we need to, to do that. But, but uh, this, this, I think, is, is the whole kind of question of uh, machinery and organizational form within capital and the fetishistic way in which it has become central uh, to the mythology of capitalism. I mean, people even rewrite the history of capitalism now in terms of the genius entrepreneur who invented this and that. that. Marx is saying there was no genius entrepreneur. Uh, and if there was, they were subsumed within actually a dynamic which kind of said, you know, and you go and you move from, and this is what does happen in the next chapter, you move from technological changes which are embedded within a particular industries to generic technologies, uh, by which I mean something like uh, the steam engine. The steam engine was not invented for a particular industry. I mean, and if it was invented for a particular industry, it was about getting water out of mines and things like that. But then it had all kinds of applications. So soon, soon the, the makers of steam engines were making steam engines to power, uh, you know, power looms, steam engines to uh, put into engines, steam engines to pump water out of mines, and steam engines to do all kinds of things. Same thing with computers. Computers are a generic form of of, of uh, technology that can be applied across all forms of the division of labor, so you can computerize everything. So, so generic technologies are not invented within uh, just just to solve a problem. They're not like a power loom, which was which was invented just simply to deal with uh, you know cotton spinning, you know, and didn't have applications elsewhere. So, generic technologies become become significant. So, I think the whole kind of question of the evolution of the role of technological fixes and technological changes and the technological fetishisms of capitalist society then become uh, a question to be looked at. And of course we see that in some of the writings of the people coming out of Silicon Valley. You know, they've got this uh, technological utopia, techno-utopia, everything's going to be done by artificial intelligence, but oh my God, where's the demand going to come from and how what's employment going to happen? Okay, we'll give people a basic income or something like that. Yeah, it's it's uh, kind of so where where that's going, you know, is up for us to sort of uh, deal with. But it's but it is part of the of, of the story of technological change under capitalism. But Marx's central point is that this is not something that comes from outside, and it's not something that is, resides in the human spirit. It's something specific uh, to a capitalist mode of production. And if you don't like technological change, then you've got to be anti-capitalist. And if you want to be anti-capitalist, you've got to say something about technological change, too. So.
Are we out of time? Okay. All right. So next week, then, we all will do uh, chapter 15 as much as you can. We'll probably get about halfway through it, but I, like I say, I want to spend a bit of time talking about uh, that footnote. This is, I think, a very important uh, uh, footnote. Okay.